get to the psalm in just a minute, but I need to look at some background for the passage here. We're going to meet a, a man named Doeg the Edomite. What do you recall about the Edomites? Who are they related to? Where have they come up before in the Bible? Yes, Esau. So they would have been descendants of Esau. Good. What else? Kind of lived in kind of a cave-filled, hilly part of the country, right? So clearly they're not Israelites, right? But this particular foreigner is going to play a key role in this story in a very negative sense. Saul has decided that he wishes to kill David. David and Jonathan have just parted. David has fled from Saul at the beginning of chapter 21. David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? He wasn't unfamiliar with David. He just wonders, Where are the soldiers that you're normally leading into battle? Why are you by yourself? This seems suspicious. David says, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said, Let no one know anything about the matter in which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Was this true? No. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy. Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? The priest gives him con con gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, Is there not a spear or sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, Take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. So, um, Saul is now frustrated. David has fled from him. His own son let David get away. And now these priests have helped David, which he doesn't know about yet. And he still wants to find David to kill him because of this irrational hatred that he has toward him, this jealousy, despite the fact that God has anointed David to be the future king, and despite the fact that David has faithfully served Saul, and despite the fact that he's Saul's son-in-law, in spite of all those things, Saul still wants to kill him. So skip down to chapter 22 and verse 7. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Here now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me, so there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush 
as it is this day. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. We'll see the effect of Doeg's words in just a moment. The king summoned Ahimelech. Saul said, Now listen, son of Ahitub. And he said, Here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house. So his first response is, he's loyal to you. His second response, verse 15, did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or into the household of my father, for his servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. It's not the first time I've talked to David, and I didn't know there was any kind of dispute between, uh, between he and you, or I would have... Uh, possibly acted differently. The king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. The king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priest of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests, and he killed that day eighty-five men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, men and women, children and infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep, he struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, he would surely tell Saul... I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. As we've talked about before, the headings of the beginning of the Psalms are not inspired, but we have no reason to believe that they are historically inaccurate. And we come to Psalm 52. For the choir director, a mascal of David, when Dog the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So this sets the context for us of what evil man David has in mind when he breaks out in what seems to be a very harsh rebuke and a very antagonistic tone toward the person described in Psalm 52. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Someone have an NIV? Can you read uh, verse 1? Okay, so why does the NIV render it that way and the NASB render it this way? There's some textual variance going on there. Um, the bottom line would be that if the one is correct that talks about the loving kindness of God, the psalmist is setting in contrast God's loving kindness with this man's wickedness. Treachery versus faithfulness. Uh, read that last phrase one more time. Okay, so it's either contrasting God's character and Doeg's character 
or it's further developing that Doeg has an evil character, depending on which textual variant is correct. And um, there are more scholarly men than I who dispute which of those readings is correct. But either way, here's a man who is wicked. The idea of God's loving kindness is clearly going to come up in verse 8. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. So there's a good basis for seeing that as a possibility here in this text. Why do you boast in evil, almighty man? We have someone who is proud. We have someone who feels that his position is secure. And the reason for his position, at least in this instance, the reason for his having a position of favor with Saul is because he does the evil that the other servants of Saul are not willing to do. Notice the focus on his words as being a means of destruction. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. And as we think back over the passage, um, we have to ask, was he um, accurate in what he said. Did he inquire of the Lord for David? It doesn't say so in the text. Um, but it, it appears that regardless of what we see in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, David's perspective on it was, Doeg told the story in a particular light to make Saul be favorable toward him and to be wrathful toward Ahimelech and the rest of the priests, and in that sense was likely violating at least the spirit, if not the exact words, of the commandment that says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. At the very least, he was violating the spirit of the law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. If I know that here's someone who is, and if we say not in his right mind, that sort of lets him off the hook. Someone who is behaving as though he is crazy, yet knowing full well the wickedness of what he was doing, which is the way that Saul was acting, if I know that there's someone like Saul who is angry at someone here, and this other person talked to the person that he was angry with and gave him help, what is going to be the likely result of telling Saul that Ahimelech helped David? Now Saul's going to go after Ahimelech. He can't reach David, so he's going to go after Ahimelech. And so here is someone who used his words in a way to ensure the destruction of someone else. In a weird turn of events, there's a fair amount of literature from the Jewish rabbis that describes um, Doeg the Edomite as sort of a sage, sort of a Solomon-like figure, full of wisdom and schemes and all these other sorts of things. I'm not sure what the basis for that is. I don't have access to some of those texts. I didn't have time to explore all of that further. Regardless of that, even though some of the things that they attributed to him might have been fanciful or exaggerated, they also recognized the wickedness of his character. Here is someone who was willing to sacrifice another person in order to gain advantage for himself. 
And in that sense, whether the words he said were technically lies or not, there was a spirit of deceit and a, and a spirit of malice and all of those things working in his heart. What's God's response to this? What's the expected result for this man who has prevailed both in his words, persuading Saul to make a command, and in his actions, carrying out the command that Saul made? We would expect, well, he's gotten rid of these enemies of Saul. He's now in Saul's favor. Everything's going to go well for him, right? God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. So we have three images here. God will break you down. Perhaps the image almost of a hammer smashing a rock. Something is now broken. Secondly, he will snatch you and tear you away from your tent as though a wind came along, a tornado or a hurricane, something like that, and, and pulled his tent away from him and pulled him away with it. And then the last image, I think, probably is an image of, you know, plants, right? How many of you have ever tried to pull a dandelion out of the ground? How many of you got the root? Not usually, right? But God doesn't have the same limitations that we have. God didn't need a, a garden fork or a trowel or anything like that. God's going to reach down and rip you out of the ground and uproot you. What happens to the weeds when you pull them out of the ground and throw them in the compost bin? They're dead. So David's essentially saying, God will destroy you, God will punish you, God will kill you because of how you have acted. How could he speak this way? Isn't a God a God who has compassion on the wicked? Yes. That does not in any way contradict or negate the fact that God's compassion on the wicked is right alongside his justice that says, though I may spare them for a time, there comes a day of reckoning for every evil deed. So, what is the response then of the righteous? In verse 6, the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, who is strong in his desire, his evil desire. God's people observe the fate of Doeg and look at him and say, God has acted justly in punishing him. Why? He did not make God his refuge. He trusted in his own schemes instead of in God's blessing. Think about Doug's position, right? He was a foreigner. Why was he even close to Saul in any way? Well, uh, there's some speculation, probably valid, that he was a kind of mercenary that Saul conscripted to be a part of his army. That over time, he rose to a position of leadership. There's a description of him in the passage in 1 Samuel that he's described as a, as a shepherd. And some people take that literally, that he actually watched sheep. That doesn't seem to make sense in light of his uh, seeming military position under Saul. More likely, the word shepherd would have sort of the idea of he's a leader of men Saul had put him in some measure of authority over his other servants. And so this person who had been an outsider to Israel is now 
not quite the right-hand man to Saul the king, but perhaps pretty close to that. Who brought that about? God did. But from Doeg's opinion, his perspective, he was receiving the credit for it, and if he wanted to preserve that position, it was his responsibility to make that happen. He did not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. Now, it doesn't take very much in the way of riches for us to quickly trust in them instead of God, right? You can be proud that you have 50 bucks. You can be proud that you have $50 million, right? And if you're trusting in that or any other thing instead of in God, you're not making God your refuge, and you're probably evidencing an attitude of ungodly ambition. He was strong in his evil desire. You're not satisfied with that, even though you think that it gives you security. You want more of that, whatever that is. Money, popularity, uh, recognition of some kind, all of these other sorts of things. And the righteous mock Doeg and say, God has punished you, he has punished you rightly, and these are the sort of the charges or the accusations God could rightly bring against you. You didn't trust in God as your refuge. You trusted in something that you had, thinking it would give you security, and you pursued your evil desires clearly to the extent of committing sin in order to achieve them, right? Because even though the word evil there is in italics, it's supplied by the translators, it fits the context based on what we read in 1 Samuel 21 to 22. He might have wanted Saul's approval, but if Saul was disobeying God, that shouldn't have been his goal. His goal should have been first and foremost to please God, not to please Saul, particularly when pleasing Saul meant doing something as wicked as not just killing one man who had offended Saul, but a whole bunch of priests, their families, including their children, their animals, he just went on a killing spree and wiped out most of the city, as far as we can tell. That is selfish ambition, gone unchecked, with blind pursuit of an ungodly goal, willing to go to any lengths to achieve it. Note the contrast that David describes between himself and Doeg. As for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God, I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. In this psalm, David does not deal with his part in bringing about this, from a human perspective, tragic circumstance. He does deal with it in the account of 1 Samuel 22. He says to Abiathar, I'm at least part of the reason why this took place. I didn't kill them but I should have thought more carefully about the fact that when Saul heard this news, this would have been the result. But here David's focus is not on those things and not even at this point on Doeg's sin other than to be a contrast to it. His emphasis is on the fact that there is one who does not trust in God and receives God's judgment. There is one who trusts in God, who praises God, who waits on his name because God is with him. David was a man after God's own heart, a man who lied, 
committed adultery, later murder, and all these other sorts of things, and yet who repented of those things, someone who had a relationship with God, and both because of his relationship with God, because God had appointed him to be king, and because of his relationship with God as one of the Israelites who genuinely knew and trusted in God, David could say, there's a weed that's going to get ripped out of the ground. It's like, it's like I'm a house plant in God's temple. That's kind of the, the picture here, I think. I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. How do you treat house plants? A lot better than you treat weeds, right? They're outside. You kill them. You uproot them. You rip them out. This, some, you may not have a green thumb. I've killed my share of house plants. But... In this illustration, God is watching over David. God is caring for him. God will bless him. He will prosper, which I think ties very nicely with Psalm 1 and the song that we sang to open service. How do we apply this to ourselves? Before we get there, perhaps we should ask, did what David said actually happen to Doeg? Did God punish him? If you had the position of prominence that he seems to have in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, then he was one of the soldiers of Israel who died with Saul and Jonathan on the day the Philistines defeated them. We don't have direct confirmation as in a verse that says that, but that's a very reasonable assumption. And so in that sense, what David says here, after the slaughter of the priest and probably before the death of Saul and Jonathan and many of the Israelite soldiers came true. A couple of points of application. Do we consider the long-term effects of our words or are we willing to use our words in ungodly ways to get what we want? You take that a lot of directions. We talk about lying we could talk about slander. We could talk about um, gossip, which would be just saying things about someone that maybe that that are true, but you say them to put them in a bad light or to bring harm to them, which is kind of along the lines of what Doeg does here. And it's funny because in churches sometimes we have the feeling certain things are really bad: adultery, murder. Some of those things are really bad. Gossip. It happens in churches. Think about what you say, to whom you are saying it. Is it true? Is it for the benefit of the person whom it's about? And there's a right place for saying, here's what's going on in someone's life. They've given permission to me to share it. Pray for them so that God continue to work in their life. There's nothing wrong with that. But Satan so easily tempts us take it beyond that and turn it into a sort of competition where we like, well, I know this about this person. Well, I know this other detail about this person. And pretty soon, we've just sort of spilled all these details about someone's life without any desire to help them, but only a desire to make ourselves look like the person who has their finger on the pulse of what's happening. I say, well, that wouldn't happen here. I don't know of it happening here, but I know it happens in churches. I've seen it. So we need to be careful to watch our words, not to do harm with our words, certainly not to do harm in a way that's extreme and as wicked as we see in this passage, but to watch our words. And then the common 
uh, application that we see in much of the wisdom literature of the Psalms and in Proverbs and so forth. There's two ways. Blessing, if you trust in God. Destruction, if you trust in yourself. So the simple application along those lines is trust in God, don't be like Doeg the Edomite. Unless we make this all about us, what we say, what we do, look at how God is described. God is a God who is described as one who has loving kindness. The ultimate contrast is not between David and Doeg. It's between any human being and God. God is consistently faithful. He keeps his promises. We can often be unfaithful. And so praise God that he is faithful and seek his help that we might similarly also be faithful. Let's close there with this psalm. Let's pray. Lord, this is a sobering passage. There's much that we didn't go into necessarily about uh, trying to understand the why of your sovereignty in the carrying out of this terrible event in Israel's history. And that perhaps would be good to explore another time, but this passage here in Psalms does not primarily focus on that other than to say, you will judge the wicked, you will bless the righteous, you are a God who is faithful. And Lord, honestly, those are the truths that we need to keep in mind as well when we encounter these sorts of circumstances so easily we want to turn to you and somehow say, this is your fault, God, without considering, as David did, the part that he had in the circumstance, without considering, as David reflected on, the wickedness of Doeg and his eventual end, without considering the way that you work in the world and the fact that you are carrying out your plan in it, even if we don't see all of the twists and turns in the road, we will arrive at the end in which you have accomplished justice, you have delivered your people, you have crushed your enemies, and with Christ we will have victory. And so, Lord, help us anticipate that day and be your people who are following you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.